All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Philip Duff Show. If you're listening on Spotify, if you're watching on my YouTube channel, Philip Duff, you'll be able to see the slides as well. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share, follow me on Twitter at Philip Duff. That's P-H-I-L-I-P-D-U-F-F. Follow me on Instagram at Philip S. Duff, P-H-I-L-I-P-S-D-U-F-F. But what are you here for? You're here for the prehistory and evolution of gin. This is one, as they say, out of the old box. It's at least for the first time 12 years. I taught this for the very first time for the G-Vine Gin Company, the French Great Base Gin, who were delighted to hear that early gins and indeed Genevers were grape based. But of course, grain and juniper, which you can see on the slide if you're watching on YouTube, play an extremely important part. So get yourself a juniper-based beverage. I have mine right here. Strap yourself in and let's head back. So grapes, grain, juniper. This is going to come up again and again today. What you're looking at now, if you're sensible enough to be looking at, is a lady named Maria de Jewess. She had a few other names, but they were all really disguises. What she was was perhaps the first true alchemist of the Western world. She lived and worked somewhere between the 1st and 3rd century AD in Alexandria, in what is now modern-day Egypt. And among many other inventions, she invented an early still. I consider her to be the mother of distilling. She also, incidentally, invented the indirect heat method called the bain-marie. So if you've ever wondered why the bain-marie in a kitchen is called bain-marie, well, this is the Marie, Maria de Jouas. She was an incredible scientist and teacher. And among other things, what she came up with was an apparatus called the tribikos, the three-legged precursor to a still that you can see there. It was essentially a cooking pot called a cucurbit with a helmet called the alambic yeah does that ring any bells out there and a receiving vessel a file now alambic is an arabic word so is alcohol obvious alambic comes from the arabic alambix still and that comes from the greek word ambix vase all of this was translated after the muslim invasions of europe but we'll get to that in a bit so shout out to Maria. Without her, we wouldn't be drinking gin, Geneva, or anything else. All right, where are we at now? Next slide. What's going down here? There we go. Uh, this is a picture of the Muslim invasion of Europe. It's not widely known, but up until about the mid-700s AD, large chunks of Europe were actually ruled by Arabic leaders they were having in a way their crusades invading and conquering countries including modern day portugal spain half of france great bits of italy and so on this however was a very good thing let me explain why here is a map of europe and using my google map thing more or less distilling is thought to have originated near what is now modern day lebanon Mesopotamia, lots of people debate it, but you know, within a few hundred miles of there, the first modern day distilling happened, but, but it wasn't for making beverage alcohol. It was actually for making antimony powder, eyeshadow, which was largely worn by men as well as women. 
This knowledge, however, spread because the Arabic world was very sophisticated. They had uh, written communications, highly structured hierarchies of society. They traveled, they traded, they facilitated great parts of the Silk Road, which traded with Asia and China. So very big deal. And before you knew it, whoops, look at that. That knowledge had spread across the Middle East into Africa and Northern Africa. From there, scholars of geography will know, it is but a, a hop, skip and a jump into Europe. You can go from North Africa to the Southern Iberian Peninsula without barely getting your feet wet by way of places like Gibraltar. This is the route that this distilling knowledge took. And from there, it shot up and around all of uh, Europe, especially to Holland. The Dutch are multilingual now and they were multilingual then. They traveled and they traded. They learned new technologies and took them back to their home country and very often industrialized them because a Dutch person has never seen a business opportunity. They didn't want to jump on with both feet. Some of that distilling knowledge, because it was spreading through largely, shall we say, religious countries, went to Ireland. And this is where the history of Irish distilling started as well. The distilling knowledge, of course, was picked up from, shall we say, the early business incubators, the libraries, which were, of course, monasteries. Back then, there was no free borders, no passports, no travel. If you traveled to a foreign country, it was extremely likely that you would be murdered immediately on site as a matter of form by any soldier or even regular person. To say that people had a small view of the world is to put things mildly. There was one exception though, and that was monasteries. If you were a traveling priest or a monk, you could go to a monastery anywhere else with a reasonable expectation that you would be given a place to sleep, a roof over your head, some food and access to their libraries and knowledge and tradition. So many monks were kind of like traveling scholars, going around, learning new ways. And many of the monks were early scientists, alchemists like Maria the Jewess. And they would go to places like Toledo in Spain and Salerno in Italy, which coincidentally were places that uh, the Arabs had invaded and brought their technology with them. And it was these monks who translated Arabic distilling knowledge into European languages. First Latin, of course, and then all the other ones. So this is how distilling knowledge got into Europe. Why isn't this not? There we go. Now, the thing is, that uh, tribicus, right, with the cucurbitus and the alambic and the file, wasn't cooled sufficiently to produce alcohol of the type known as ethanol, which is to say beverage alcohol. It can produce things like methanol, which would make you go blind, but so far no one's drinking gin martinis. It was, incidentally, Paracelsus, another alchemist, active between 1493 and 1541, who used the Arabic word alcohol, alcohol to equate to beverage alcohol, because by that time, right, bear in mind, Maria the Jewess was active between the 1st and 3rd century AD. So they'd had quite a bit of time by the time Paracelsus came along between 1493 and 1541 to improve the still enough that it could produce ethanol, beverage alcohol that would not send you crazy. 
Now, next up is Jakob von Merland. Jakob von Merland grew up and lived most of his life, as far as we're sure, in Dom, in what is now Belgium. And in 1269, he published the results of about 14 years of work, which was largely a translation and an update of a book that had been written by another Belgian monk, Thomas von Cantimpre, called Liber de Natura Rerum. Von Merland's update and translation was a 12-volume encyclopedia of all flora and fauna in Europe called Der Naturenblume, Nature's Bloom, Nature's Flower. And when I say that Jakob von Merland didn't have a lot of friends or an active Tinder account, he wrote the entire thing in rhyme. This is someone with a lot of time on his hands. This publication, of which there are several copies in many libraries all around Europe, is very important because it has the first reference to distilling in the Dutch language. And by a happy coincidence, it involves juniper. Van Merland writes, he who wants to be rid of stomach pain should use juniper cooked in rainwater because rainwater would be pure and city water might not be. He who has cramps cook juniper in wine. It's good against the pain. Now this is true. Juniper in a time before gastrointestinal surgery was possible was a magical drug. It would clear up any kind of stomach ailments, uh, digestive issues. It could be used in extreme concentrations to induce an abortion. It was a magical, magical thing. So it started off as a medicine and wound up as a recreational drug, some of which I'm drinking right now. In 1495, somebody wrote a self-published book. A copy of this book is in what's called the Sloan Manuscripts, which were donated to the British Library by the English doctor and collector, Sir Hans Sloan. He bought collections of collections, and it's extremely likely he never even knew what he bought because this particular book was written in Dutch, and Sloan didn't read that. But in the Sloan manuscripts, which if you go along to the British Library in London and you don't look like a total lunatic, they'll actually let you look at. I've held this book in my own hands. In folio 345, pages 51 to 51V, there is a treatise called Making Burned Wine. Now, this is within a cookbook, a one-of-a-kind manuscript cookbook that was so expensive, it had to have been commissioned by somebody really quite wealthy who lived between Arnhem and Appledorn in modern-day Holland in 1495 because it was commissioned manuscript style. It was written, you know, the way with all the little curlicues and little uh, things. It's an amazing manuscript. If you are to look at it, and I've had the pleasure of looking at it with my own eyes, it looks like it was written yesterday. The black inks are jet black, the reds are blood red, it's using inks like carmine and cochineal and gall, which is from a wasp, I believe. It's amazing. And what's important about this is, it's a cookbook, there are medicinal recipes in it, but the recipe we're going to talk about now was not in the medicinal recipes, it was in the fun recipes, right? So this is, as far as we know, the oldest reference to a recreational distilled juniper spirit. And what is it, I hear you ask? Philip, tell us, please. I will. I will. Calm down. Calm down.
So this is the book. You can zoom in on it if you're watching on the old uh, YouTube. Uh, what it details is Lee's fermented wine from Saint-Jean-d'Angely, which is very close to Cognac in France. Even back then, the Dutch were buying wine from France, and many of the negotiants, the traders who were based in Cognac, were Dutch or Belgian. These were the same people, by the way, who later tried to save a bit of money on shipping by first dehydrating the brandy of the Cognac region before shipping it to Holland. And they called that burned wine, brande wine. And that's where we get the world brandy from. Now, this refers to burned wine from the Cognac region. Lees fermented, like much of the best Cognac is now. And you could cut it with clean water or Hamburg beer. Now, at the time, Hamburg beer was the absolute stuff. It was the best stuff you could get. And you couldn't count on water being clean. So this is also kind of a, a fence-sitting thing here by uh, whoever it was who wrote this book, and we don't know who it was, in that if you make it with least fermented French wine and clean water, it's the oldest uh, grape-based recreational juniper spirit we've ever heard of. If you make it with least fermented French wine and Hamburg beer, it's a little bit also the oldest grain-based recreational juniper spirit, right? Because beer is obviously grain-based. And the botanicals. This is a lot of money. These botanicals drip money. Well, most of them do. You have to bear in mind, 1495, sugar cost more than gold, and there wasn't basically any in Europe. Sugar beets had not been optimized for the production of sugar. That only happened in the mid to late 1800s, and because Napoleon offered a massive amount of reward for anybody who could do it. No, this was a life in Europe without sugar or spice. All the spices had to come overland from places like Asia. So they were wildly expensive. We're talking Elon Musk trips to Mars expensive, right? Because it was carried on a camel for months, years maybe. For instance, nutmeg cost more per gram than gold. And what have we got here? We've got cardamom money. Cinnamon, money, cloves, money, galanga from uh, Indonesia, money. You've got ginger, money. You've got grains of paradise, which is a pepper from West Africa, money. You've got gorse bush, hmm? And you've got nutmeg. I actually broke it down. There's a technical distilling recipe contained within it. And roughly equating stuff out, bit of this, bit of that, bit of the other, each 750 milliliter bottle or 700 ml bottle would have cost the modern day equivalent of 70,000 American dollars to make. So this was a rich person who commissioned this book. We know that. And this recipe is a bling recipe. So he or she wanted to show this off to the world. And by the way, this would have been made in somebody's house, in the kitchens, almost certainly by women. 
because women back then baked the bread, they brewed the beer, so it's almost certain they would have made this, and they would have made it, you know, relatively regularly, and this wealthy person, maybe a merchant or an aristocrat or whatever, would have pulled it out and said, hey, check out this mad shit, and everyone would have gone, whoa, dude, this was like a lot of money. However, it turns out that uh, one Professor Eric van Schoenenberghe, the leading professor in the history of Geneva's research, he's uh, since died, but I did get to meet him beforehand, in his amazing book, Geneva and the Low Countries, Geneva and the Lachalanda, he had tracked down this manuscript in the British Library, and he, being a good multilingual chap, speaking Dutch, French, German and English, among other languages, worked out that it wasn't gorse bush in the botanicals, it was juniper. So this is the OG recipe for a recreational distilled juniper drink. I hope there's an older one out there. I know there's an older one out there, but we haven't found it yet. So this is a remarkable thing. Cardamom, cinnamon, grains of paradise, juniper cloves, galanga, ginger and nutmeg. We actually made this, a group of people, myself, Gary Regan, Dave Broom, uh, Dave Wondrich, several other friends. We recreated this with as primitive a still as we could make at the Givine headquarters in France. And it was not exactly, you know, a modern day gin. It was packed with flavor and terpines. And we had to add a little bit of Marc de Cognac. That's the Bagasse brandy of Cognac. But it's an amazing thing to drink and go back in time to 1495. Imagine what the word was like then. So we go from 1495 to 1582. Bear in mind, it's always easier to distill from grapes than grain because grapes are juicy little fuckers full of sugar. They ferment spontaneously every year all around the world people get murdered by drunken bears. Bears that have been eating grapes or other fruits that have fallen on the ground and spontaneously fermented because we are surrounded by yeast. And bears are dangerous enough when they're sober. I can't imagine what they're like when they're drunk. However, the prime grape growing regions of Europe, although grapes grow then and grow now in Holland and Belgium and Germany, the major places were Spain and France. Big countries, constantly at war with one another and if they weren't at war with another they were probably at war with germany or holland or belgium so it was just constant war and that kind of gets to be a lot right it's like a lot you know so by 1582 everybody had switched to grain now how do we know that it's because a defrocked priest named casper janzon kohlhaes from Leiden in Holland, wrote a book called A Guide to the Silling in 1582. Now, they don't make priests like they used to. Colshays was actually kicked out of his church because he advocated for the church to have less power. And they said, fuck you, Colshays. And they turfed him out and he immediately became a distiller. I mean, this is, this, it, would be, it would be great if the world was full of more ex-priests who became distillers, just saying. Anyway, he had a distillery there. He or his son or both of them founded one in Amsterdam. It was a whole thing. But he wrote this very influential book in 1582. It was reprinted, translated, boom, boom, boom. 
And what he said was, Kornbrandewein, meaning grain-burned wine, which is a fucked up way to say something distilled from grain. In aroma and taste is almost the same as brandy wine, meaning grape wine. And is not only named brandy wine, but also drunken paid for as brandy wine. He was pissed. Because the thing was, there was an idea that spirits distilled from grapes were somehow noble, sacred. Colhase, remember, was a religious man. And he was horrified that people were distilling from grain and selling it and it was being drunk as if it was grape. He was horrified. That's really the tone of voice in this, uh, this book that he wrote. But it did show that in less than 100 years, from 1495 to 1582, the main base for recreational juniper spirits switched from being grape-based to grain-based. Now, it's time for a Geneva 101. Yay, yay, thanks, Phil. Love it. By the way, if you want to go deeper on this and look at my YouTube channel, look up the Spotify uh, podcast episodes, there is a Geneva history and mixology seminar that goes a bit deeper than this. We're just going to skim over it. But what we understand to be Geneva now is a grain-based spirit with juniper. A little bit of juniper, a tiny little bit of juniper, that back in the far, far, far history uh, was originally made with grapes, but like everything else, it switched into being made with grain. And the reason we're doing Geneva 101 here is that to understand gin, you must understand first Geneva. So, it is protected by the EU law 787, which supersedes EU 110-2008. You can only make it in the country of Holland, also known as the Netherlands, the country of Belgium, two provinces of Germany, Niedersachsen and Nordrhein-Westfalia that border Holland, or two northeastern départements in France, which is Nord and Pas-de-Calais that border Belgium. So these are the traditional production regions of Geneva. It must contain juniper. It does not have to be discernible. You have to compare that to the legislation for gin, which states that must have a distinct aroma and taste of juniper. Geneva absolutely does not. So there's three styles of Geneva. There's one that grew up really post-World War II in the 1950s, and it's called New Style or Junge. It has to be at least 35% ABV. It must contain at least 1.5% of malt wine. Malt wine is the malt grain distillate at the heart of Geneva. It's not based on grapes, there's no wine in it. It's a translation from the Dutch Germanic languages, right? It can have only have a maximum of 15% of that malt, and you can only add 10 grams of sugar per liter. The old style Geneva, which is what most people outside Holland and Belgium think of when they think of Geneva, has to be at least 35% ABV, contain at least 15% malt wine. Most of them contain about 17% in Holland and anywhere from you know 20 to 100% outside Holland and contain a maximum of 20 grams of sugar per litre, which is quite a lot. And then Cordenvine is a premium style of Geneva that was introduced in the very early 1970s in Holland, right? They wanted to have a gimmick, so they said, oh, you should drink this chilled. And Cordovine 
has to be at least 38% ABV, at least 51% malt, and also have a maximum of 20 grams of sugar per liter. Interestingly, Coravine does not have to contain juniper at all. You can sell it as Coravine. It looks like Geneva to some degree. It tastes like Geneva, but it doesn't have to contain any juniper at all. However, if you add juniper to it, if you do include juniper, you can label it as Coravine Geneva. So not, not many people would appreciate that uh, distinction, but because you are uh, intelligent and attractive, I know that you do. So sum it up, new style Geneva since the 1950s, minimum 35% ABV, minimum 1.5% malt wine, maximum 15% malt wine, max 10 grams of sugar per liter. Old style Geneva, which is what Geneva is to everyone else, minimum 35% ABV, minimum 15% malt wine, maximum 20 grams of sugar per liter, and Cordovine, which generally isn't sold outside Holland or Belgium, or if it is, they just don't bother putting Cordovine in the label. They just say, this is Geneva, because Geneva is confusing enough. Cordovine has to be at least 38% ABV, a minimum of 51% malt wine, and you can only add 20 grams of sugar per liter. There is no aging requirement for any kind of Geneva whatsoever, but if you mention aging on the label, it has to be a minimum of a year in barrels no larger than 700 liters, which are fucking enormous. Now, if you're watching on YouTube, thank you, you are looking at a picture of the gorgeous Filiers Distillery. It's in Belgium. And here's the thing. 99% of all the Geneva that's exported from Holland and some percentage in the 90s of all the Geneva that is consumed in Holland is actually made in Belgium. This new style Geneva, the young Geneva, became so wildly popular because it contained about typically 98.5% neutral alcohol and 1.5% malt. So it's essentially vodka. Cheap, uh, mixes with anything, you know, neutral. And in the 1950s, when it was introduced into Holland, there was no vodka in Holland. No one was drinking vodka in Holland. So essentially, the Dutch got the drop on vodka and it made vast amounts of profits for everyone involved. But by the 1970s, it had got to the stage that the brands, the companies weren't building brands. They were just competing on price. Because if you drop the price a euro or two, your sales go up. Boom. Great. Except, of course, somebody else can always drop it a euro or two again. And then your sales go down and their sales go up. So eventually, you're trying to save every penny that you can. And distilleries are expensive to operate. They're expensive to build, but they're much more expensive to operate. So every big producer, Balls to Kuiper, Hoghout, Rutte, De Borgen, all of them stopped distilling. And they all outsourced their production, hilariously, usually to the same distillery, in this case, Filiers in Belgium. And so long as the liquid is shipped north to Holland and bottled in Holland, they can put on the label, made in Holland. Not true, not true. But this shows you how bad things got in the Geneva world. Now, bear in mind, we were just giving a little Geneva 101, and our last date was actually 1582. Just about, what, 20 years later, the VOC was formed. The Verenigte Oost-Indische Company. The Dutch East India Company, which was to be the inspiration for the English India Company and indeed most of the other 
shall we say, exploratory companies founded by the governments of various European countries. The Dutch East India Company was the largest and most successful company that has ever existed from then until now. In fact, less than 50 years after it was founded, it had a value of over $8 trillion. To put that in 2022 context, they could buy Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Tesla without taking out a loan. How did they achieve all this? Easy. Rape, enslavement, genocide, murder of the most horrendous kind. Times were different back then. What the VOC was, was a private company. It was a private company, right? Like any of the ones I just named. However, the government of the Netherlands, as it was then, empowered it with the ability to raise armies and navies, to engage in war and skirmishes, to claim territories and impose taxes. It was essentially outsourcing the job of colonization to private companies. And everybody could invest in the VOC. This is why, by the way, uh, stock markets and stock market investing was invented in Holland as well. The world's first joint stock company in which you could buy a share was the VOC. And stock markets were invented in Holland, trading floors where you could buy and sell shares, right? The Boers, uh, as this is called, the trading floor. And what, I hear you ask, was the alcohol ration issued to the sailors of the VOC as they traveled around the world, murdering and enslaving people just to ensure a supply of cinnamon or nutmeg or something. Well, it won't surprise you to hear that it was Geneva. Of course it was. Geneva was relatively inexpensive to make. It was what people liked. And when they weren't conducting a horrendous act, the Dutch East India Company traded with their counterparts right? Because sometimes they would go to places like Africa and South America and whatnot that they didn't own, but other people didn't totally own either. And they would trade with English or Portuguese or Spanish or French settlers. And very often they would be trading this Geneva stuff. The VOC is very important because, of course, the Geneva went out on the ships and what came back on the ships was botanicals. And as soon as the botanicals dropped enough in price, they could be incorporated into things like Geneva. Now, something interesting to note is almost uh, right after Caspar Jans on Colhays' book was published in 1582, Antwerp in modern day Belgium got its ass kicked by Spain. It was besieged by King Philip of Spain in 1585. Why am I telling you about this? Well, what it was, what King Philip wanted to do was take France. France was a big target for him, but France, was a very powerful target as well. They had a great army, blah, blah, blah. So he besieged Antwerp, which was at the time part of Holland. It's not anymore, it's now modern day Belgium. But he besieged the city of Antwerp, which was an extremely important port, because his idea was, if I can take this territory, then I can squeeze France, because uh, Antwerp and what was then Holland, but is now Belgium, bordered on France. I can squeeze it from both sides right, from the western border with Spain and the, uh, well, I guess the southern border with Spain and the eastern border with Belgium. Now, it didn't work out 
But he besieged the city of Antwerp for several years, which pissed off everybody. And 8,000 then Dutch, modern day Belgian, refugees fled. Many of them just fled all the way north to Amsterdam. But thousands of them fled over the channel to a country that was a very close sister state to Holland, England. And they settled in London. These now Belgians, then Dutch people, knew Geneva, they made Geneva, they drank Geneva, they loved Geneva. Remember that. It's going to crop up again in a bit. Now, in 1623 in London, a guy called Philip Massinger wrote a play called The Duke of Milan. It wasn't very good, although it can't have been all that bad because it did get performed a lot. And what Massinger wrote in this play was a joke. He was English, so it wasn't a very good joke. But the joke was about uh, soldiers and drunkenness. It was that if a soldier drank Geneva, he could only read Geneva. And Geneva was a very large print font, right? Meaning he was so drunk, he could only read very big letters. I'm bringing this up because English people, then as now, not great at foreign languages. They had trouble saying the word Geneva. So they called it either Dutch gin or Holland gin. And after this play came out, they called it Geneva, like the city in Switzerland. There is no history of Geneva distilling in Switzerland whatsoever. But you'll see Geneva being called Holland gin, Dutch gin and Geneva constantly. So that's where it comes from. If you're on YouTube, you're now looking at the page saying bullshit warning, 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 bullshit warning all the way down. So this is what it is. You probably heard that there was a professor at a university in Holland who invented gin. And his name was Professor Silvius or Professor Franciscus or Professor Franciscus Silvius or something like that. Or maybe you heard there's two of them. It's all bollocks. It's really, really not true. Let me break that down for you. There was a professor called Franciscus de Lebeau. He was born in Germany, in Hanover, in 1614. German father, Dutch mother, or the other way around, I can't remember. And in 1658, he became a professor at Leiden University in Holland, one of the oldest and most prestigious universities in the whole world. And he was an iatrochemist, which is the cutting edge technology of the day. An iatrochemist, we laugh now, was a scientific researcher who believed that all human health was related to five humors, you know, bile, cholera, that kind of thing. And if you could get them in balance, you'd be healthy. We laugh now, but that was like the shit back then. Now, a couple of things. He's sometimes called Dr. Silvius, sometimes called Dr. Franciscus Silvius, but his name was Franciscus de Lebeau. De Lebeau means of the woods. So if your name is Franciscus of the Woods, everyone nicknames you Silvius, because Silvius also means of the woods, right? This is where we get the English word sylvan, meaning of the words, like a, of the woods, like a sylvan wood nymph, right? There weren't two Franciscus de la Beaux. There wasn't a separate Dr. Silvius. There was one dude and he never did a damn thing with juniper at all except maybe drink it right 
as an iatrochemist he probably did some research with it right there was an idea that what you ate what you drank affected everything almost certainly but bear in mind he was born in 1608 in 1606 geneva water was being recreationally taxed in amsterdam right in fact there are records of corn brandy vine which almost certainly contained juniper being taxed as a recreational drink in amsterdam in 1497 right silvius was born two years after geneva water was specifically being taxed and the word geneva was in common use right when he was like what 15 years old he didn't invent geneva he didn't invent gin the only thing he might have ever done with his life is drinking so anyway back to history 1689 england got a new king and the winner of england's next top monarch was king willem the third king billy he was a protestant dutch prince what it was they didn't want a catholic king in england and they didn't want a catholic king in england so badly they were prepared to import a prince from holland and put him on the throne rather than have a catholic i mean they really didn't want a catholic and king billy came in and like any good i guess english monarch although he was dutch he went to war with france because that's what english kings do he went to war with France and he banned all imports of French products. But he knew, especially his wealthy aristocratic supporters, he had to keep them happy and they liked their brandy. So he lowered the taxes on distilling to the point that it costs less to get a distilling license than a beer license. And bear in mind, there was all those thousands of, now Belgian, then Dutch, refugees in London already. They know Geneva, they like Geneva, maybe they were making Geneva. All of a sudden, everybody starts trying to make geneva right and they didn't do a very good job we're going to return to that in a moment but just to keep up with the chronology of this in 1708 mahon gin was born in menorca in spain what happened was the english navy rocked up and said we're taking this as a strategic port and the local shop owners are like all right whatever because back then english sailors drank like well sailors and they said to the local bar owners and shop owners we're english sailors so we require alcohol and the shop owners are like we're on it no worries and they imported greek vine wood rootstock and started planting grapes because grapes grow easily in spain and they created Mahon Gin, which is the oldest grape-based gin in the world. It's an appellation. You can only make it there. Uh, as we go to press here in 2022, I think there's only one brand called Mahon Gin out there. Although there could be, you, you, there's a possibility for more of them to exist. And this is the oldest grape-based gin in the world. There's a picture of a couple of girls in bikinis walking down the beach that have nothing really to do with this, but that's what most people think about when they think of Menorca. But yeah, 1689, Dutch prince, English throne, lowers distilling taxes, everyone starts trying to make Geneva. 1708, Menorca in Spain, uh, grape-based gin. Now, from 1715 to about 1751, England had a gin craze. What was happening was they were trying to make Geneva but geneva is 
essentially whiskey. You need to be able to make good whiskey that doesn't require barrel aging because nobody routinely barrel aged whiskey until the 1800s. And they would use small amounts of juniper to do what barrels later on would do, which is to say they would use it to add flavor and consistency. But the juniper was always a very faint flavor note. It was all about making an amazing grain distillate. So you need to be able to make good whiskey to make good Geneva. And the thing was, all the distilling knowledge in England at the time was not in and around London. It was in their colonies of Scotland and Ireland which were as dangerous then as Afghanistan is now, right? So nobody knew really how to make this good stuff. So they did what distillers have been doing from time immemorial. They packed in 20 or 30 times the amount of botanicals, principally juniper, because that was the cheapest because it grew in Holland and England. So juniper went from being a faint, touch of flavor like a dash of bitters in old-fashioned to being the main deal because it was being used to cover up a low quality pot still distillate and everybody went mad for it it was cheaper than beer but obviously eight times stronger soldiers were returning from overseas wars some of them in holland where they had developed a taste for geneva and it wasn't like it is now. There was no homecoming parade for military veterans and a pension and stuff. No veterans administration or British Legion or anything like that. Uh-uh. You came home from a war, you were unemployed. So all these highly trained murderers were broke and on the streets. And someone's like, hey, you want to try this? It's eight times stronger than beer. It's like, fuck yeah. This, to put it mildly, did not lead to good outcomes. The English gin craze has been compared to the crack epidemic that was suffered in places like Los Angeles in the early 1980s. People neglected their children. The picture that you're looking at now on the YouTube is from William Hogarth, the artist's uh, gin lane picture, which shows a woman allowing her child to fall to its almost certain death. It's actually based on a true story which shocked even England. There was a lady named Judith who was so poor uh, that she didn't even have custody of her own child. The child was in a, an orphanage and she was able to visit. And one day she took the child out of the orphanage and murdered it so that she could sell its clothes to buy what they called gin. This horrified even the English. Now, an important part of understanding all of this is that in 1747 to 1751, they passed gin acts, at least three of them, which put the power for the gin, they were trying to make Geneva, distilling industry in ever larger hands. It meant that you couldn't be a home distiller because the main problem was everyone was distilling at home. They're all making horrible stuff, some of it lethal, selling it to one another for pennies and people were dying. And from the government's point of view, nobody was getting tax revenue. So they passed successive gin acts. And in 1748, a whole lot of soldiers came home from the war and it got really, really bad there for a while. If you're on the YouTube, you're looking at side by side a couple of uh, the classic pictures of Gin Lane 
versus uh, Beer Alley. So here's the thing. This guy, he was a superstar illustrator and writer, William Hogarth. He was actually hired by the beer lobby to make two pictures, which he did. The famous one is Gin Lane. There's uh, active uh, pawnbrokers. There's people dead in the street, soldiers selling their uniform, women allowing their children to die. And that's what happens when you drink gin, meaning Geneva. In Beer Alley, the pawnbrokers is out of business. Everyone is happy. The families are smiling at one another, strolling through the streets. It was pure propaganda. But nobody knows about Beer Alley and everyone's heard about Gin Lane. This propaganda was effective. There were so many nicknames for illegally distilled gin back then. Crank, Mexico, Sky Blue. But by 1748-1751, the industry was in the hands of big, wealthy industrialists. Uh, they were no longer allowed to retail. And it began to be higher and higher quality. And because these big companies paid more and more taxes, they began to be beloved by you know, the king, the queen, the government. And that meant that gin began to be a, an upper class thing that you drank. Old Tom is something that everyone has heard of, Old Tom Gin. And the understanding until some fantastic research emerged from uh, the man, the legend, Dave Wondrich, Professor Dave Wondrich of New York, the liquor historian of choice for all of us. Uh, we thought that Old Tom was an attempt to make Geneva and to cover up those distilling faults with tons of juniper and a lot of sugar. But in fact, Old Tom was a very high quality, unsweetened, undiluted gin. They had worked out a way even before the invention of the column still, which we'll get to in a moment, to make a high quality pot still gin with lots of juniper and no sugar that tasted delicious. And it was a, a sample for favored customers of a particular gin maker in the UK. Most people know the story of the uh, customs inspectors, Captain Dudley Bradstreet. He was supposed to find illegal distillers and find them. But he was terrible at it because he couldn't even find the illegal distillery and gin shop he was running himself. He actually had uh, a sort of a shop front with a door in it and you put a penny in a cat's mouth and you actually got Old Tom Gin out of a tube, which was kind of like, I guess, gin to go. Now, what's happened is between the seven, mid-1750s and the late 1800s, the gin dynasties were established. The Gordons, the Plymouths, the Tanquerays, the Beefeaters, right? And a score of other names, right? Like Haymans and Boards and Nicholsons and things like that. And these were big mega industrials. They, you know, hobnobbed with the aristocrats. They paid a lot of tax. They got listings with the Royal Navy and the army because back then all the military people had liquor rations. They normalized all of this and a big thing that had happened was that uh gin palaces began to open sometimes these were owned by the gin companies and these were enormously it's what you think of when you think of an english pub really a big you know green studded leather couches mahogany beautiful lights back bars mirrors these gin palaces though weren't for wealthy people 
They were for poor people. They were for people who would pay a penny or two for gin. And it was the most beautiful, marvelous place most of these peasants had ever seen. So they were seduced into spending their money on gin, which was, let's be clear, eight times stronger than any beer they'd ever had before. So from the 1820s on, these gin palaces dominated, and something interesting happened in 1830. In 1830, an Irish inspector of taxes named Anus Coffey, never trust a man named Anus, was sick of prosecuting illegal distillers in Ireland. And he also saw how dangerous pot stilling, pot still distilling was, because it would be very common for somebody to die every couple of weeks in a distillery, because after the pot still was done distilling, they'd open it, and somebody would have to literally climb into the still and clean out all of the botanicals and whatever, and they would very often die from the fumes. So, coffee, building on earlier research by people like Cellier Blumenthal and Robert Stein, developed and trademarked a patent still called the coffee still, which was an early column still, a continual still that would produce something as near as damn it to neutral alcohol. This was a revelation. It was safer. The still was more expensive and it required technically trained people to run it, but it could run all the time and produce a neutral base. And what happened was in England, the gin distillers switched from making a shitty pot still base for their gin because they didn't know how to make a good pot still base as is needed for Geneva to this neutral base. So now, inspired by Geneva, they had covered up their lack of skill with 20 times the juniper and later on some sugar. But now they switched to an entirely neutral base. And this was the real birth of what we now call gin. Gin really was born in England. In 1860, this new gin got a real promotional boost when the phylloxera of Hestatrix louse turned up in Europe. Now, this had come over, apparently, from the New World, from the Americas, and the European vines were helpless before it. From Portugal and Spain to France, somewhere between 60 and 80% of all the vines were devastated by this louse. Nothing grew. This was the worst thing ever for the nascent wine and brandy and cognac industry. But it was the best thing ever if you made a grain distillate like whiskey or gin. So the upper class, the aristocracy, the kings and queens and dukes and earls and princes, they were the social media influencers of their day. And they switched from drinking brandy and cognac to drinking gin and whiskey. Couldn't have been a better deal for those producers. In 1920, America introduced prohibition. This was not a great thing, but it was a great thing if you made a grain spirit that could be distilled quickly and still be of reasonable quality. Now, bear in mind, nobody in America drank vodka back then, right? And gin wasn't doing hugely it did pretty well but people were more used to drinking dutch geneva in america actually there were 392 geneva distilleries in the tiny dutch town of schiedam in 1892 and 
The U.S. drank so much Geneva that in 1852, just the harbour of New York, for every one bottle of English gin they imported, they imported 450 bottles of Dutch Geneva. Now, you can't make Geneva inexpensively or quickly because it's whiskey. It really is the good stuff anyway. So prohibition was a huge shot in the arm for gin production. Contrary to popular opinion, most Americans did not drink smuggles premium alcohol some of them did the one percent but most people were drinking something that had been distilled illegally inside america or close by like canada and it had been distilled quickly with an eye to profit rather than quality and even when you do all those things to gin it still comes out kind of okay at the same time all the good bartenders had left America because suddenly your profession was outlawed. Your choices were to stay and be a criminal, leave and continue your profession or change professions. And many bartenders left to work on cruise liners uh, or to start the cocktail traditions in places like Paris and London and Vienna. Some of them bartenders started uh, work as insurance agents or real estate agents or they went to work in soda fountains making non-alcoholic drinks that all happened so the bartenders who were left were not good there was no one there to train them no one there to help them so they began drowning the spirit with tons of orange juice or ginger ale or whatever they had to hand and this worked quite well for people who were new to drinking because prohibition lasted long enough it lasted two generations of drinkers that many people their first drink was an orange blossom like gin drowned with orange juice so you really can't taste the gin anymore and they're like oh great this is also the origins of the idea that a good bartender is somebody who makes a drink where you can't taste the booze after prohibition wrapped up it wasn't long until world war ii happened and that screwed everybody up but in the 1950s again before vodka had taken hold in america or anywhere else recently gin took over the world the english companies that made it and they were all english were massive and respected and there was gin was one kind of gin it was strong 47 percent abv it was english or at least it pretended to be english and it had enough juniper in it to sink a battleship like beefeater like tanqueray like gordon's martinis what you drank to celebrate your success gnts were what upper class people drank at the golf club or the cock or the country club or on a cruise liner the queen drank gin and tonics gin looked like it couldn't lose until it did in 1965 a bar opened on New York's Upper East Side, where I live, not too far from where I live, actually. And it was opened by an unemployed perfume salesman named Alan Stillman for the singular and honorable goal of meeting attractive single women. You see, Alan lived up there as well. And back then there weren't a lot of options to meet members of the opposite sex. I know you're saying this is crazy, right? It's crazy, how would you not meet women? But back then nice ladies didn't go to bars every bar was essentially like mcsorley's which is to say a place that's literally got a p trough against the bar uh it's not welcoming to women 
there's no women's toilets it's not beautiful or nice there aren't drinks that women want or it was a very very fancy place like a hotel bar or a restaurant but there was no way to meet other people right it's very hard to meet other people in a restaurant you're at your table they're at their table what are you supposed to do throw a bread roll so Stillman noticed this being a young single man himself and he bought a bankrupt pub and redecorated it and created a place with no experience really and that was only guided by the idea of how can young people meet one another so there were big mirrors behind the bar there was tiffany lamps that women like those shiny brass the bartenders were instructed to be nice to women especially single women in fact to give them free drinks initially it was a whole thing and it was a wild success within two years they had to have crowd barriers all the way down the block from this bar which is called tgi fridays in fact by 1967 a bartender who worked five shifts wednesday through sunday doing a double for brunch on sunday would walk home with a thousand dollars in 1967 which is probably at least what two three thousand dollars in today's money amazing and what still man wanted to do was give a place to drink for a new generation they were not wearing boxy suits they weren't mad men and they weren't drinking gin stillman gave a huge platform to colorful things so a lot of the liqueurs that you think are hundreds of years old were actually invented in the 1970s for bars like fridays frangelico chambord malibu right if it was colorful if it was fruity and especially vodka because vodka mixed with everything vodka was the stuff this although nobody knew it then was the first nail in the coffin of gin in the 1960s a writer called ian fleming a former spy uh created a character called james bond and james bond was a counterculture writer at the gates of dawn he was a spy he slept with the opposite numbers he you know fought off villains and he was fighting the russians but he slept with the russian women and he drank vodka which at the time was russian by 1967 vodka was the best-selling spirit in america and it hasn't stopped since in 1988 a gentleman if you're on the youtube that you're looking at right now called michel Roux, got into the gin game he was a Frenchman who had met a couple of Americans while working in a restaurant in Paris. And they had said, hey, Michel, you ever in America? Come see us. And he did. He actually became a successful restaurateur. He told me once they opened the first French restaurant in Texas. But after divorce, he decided, don't laugh if you're in the liquor business. He decided he wanted an easier life. And he came to New York to be a liquor salesman. He, more than anybody, is responsible for the brand that you know as Absolute Vodka. He built that up to a huge amount. And after the brand was taken away from the import company that he worked for, he created Bombay Sapphire in 1988. This was the first turnaround in the fortunes of gin. Because between 1967 and 1988, gin went down the toilet. Not quite as fast in some other places like the UK, but vodka's ascendance was near total. And gin sales dive by five or ten percent every year for you know 21 years what Rue wanted to create was something of 
a gin version of Absolute. A lifestyle fashion brand that just happened to be a gin. He commissioned it from the producers, Grand Metropolitan. They produced it at the Warrington Distillery. He said to them, look, I don't care what it tastes like, it just has to taste different. So what he commissioned was a 94 proof gin, 47% ABV. If you've ever had Bombay Sapphire at 40% ABV or 37.5% ABV, it doesn't taste very ginny. So a lot of Europeans are very critical of Bombay Sapphire, but if you have it in the US, where it's 47% alcohol, this is a very serious gin. And it came in an extremely eye-catching blue bottle. It completely turned around the fortunes of gin. And it made it possible, really, for other companies to think about launching a gin. Without Michel Roux, without Bombay Sapphire, I wouldn't even be teaching this presentation. Something else that happened in 1995, only seven years after Bombay Sapphire was created, was that an Irish entrepreneur opened the Atlantic Bar and Grill in London. He actually used to be the importer to the UK of Absolute Vodka when Absolute was a little brand. Before that, he'd been a club promoter. And as he got a little older, he realized he wanted to go to a bar that was open late, but no booming music, not a nightclub, a late night bar for cool people to drink nice, proper, Classic cocktails from small glasses, nothing new, nothing blended, no fruity drinks, none of that, the real stuff. And he recruited a well-known bartender who had mostly worked in private members clubs called Dick Bradsell to run it. Well, this was the place that started the cocktail revolution. Pretty soon, cocktail superstars like Dale DeGroff, who himself had instituted a similar program at the Rainbow Room in New York, started visiting, as did uh, future superstars like Audrey Saunders. And they saw what was happening in London, and bartenders who'd been trained at the Atlantic Bar and Grill went on to open places like Alphabet and Lab Bar. And the English cocktail revolution predated it starting in the USA. The reason I'm bringing it all up is, in 1997, two years later, the Vanity Fair magazine from America went to London. They were going to do a London edition because London was cool. England had a young, hip prime minister called Tony Blair. It had artists like Damien Hirst and Tracy Emin. And it had the Atlantic Bar and Grill. So they published a... Uh, London Swings edition, which included the catchphrase they'd invented, Cool Britannia, if you ever wonder where that came from. And this sort of external validation of England, and especially London's coolness, really cheered up a lot of London bartenders. And they started doing something that they hadn't done before. Back in 95, and I was in London in those days, if you went into the Atlantic, and I went in many times, and you got to know the bartender and he or she liked you, they might pour you a bit of nice tequila. Or maybe they'd make you a vodka cocktail. But after the Vanity Fair magazine came out, they started saying, yeah, cool Britannia, England's cool. And they started looking to English ingredients. They looked at things like gin. They're like, gin's great, gin's English. Why aren't we using more gin? And they started making more cocktails with gin. They also incidentally started looking at an ingredient that was famous for being used in 
uh, as a syrup mixer with soda water at bowls clubs in England, which is to say elderflower syrup. And it was such a convenient, almost universal mixer for cocktails that an American, the son of the founder of Chambord, came to London, saw it, and went away and created an elderflower liqueur, which of course is the one that you now know as Saint Germain. But that's not relative to this. That's not relative to this. We're talking about the turnaround of gin. And because all these London bartenders started using it, and because they were ahead of the curve cocktail-wise, and because many influential American bartenders began going to London, seeing what was happening and bringing it home, well, that really turned the tide for gin. So, it's 2022. What's gin? Well, in the EU, it has to be a minimum of 37.5% alcohol. That's... Uh, 75 proof in the US. In the US, according to the TTB, it has to be 80 proof, which is to say 40% alcohol, which for the record, I think is a much, much, much better percentage. Once you go below 40% alcohol, 80 proof with gin, I feel you lose so much. It is such a huge drop between 40 and 37 and a half. You lose all the volatiles, all the citrus aromas. It, it tastes flat and nothing, but anyway. Minimum requirement in the EU, 37.5% alcohol. And if it's just labeled gin, nothing else, then it could be ethyl alcohol with a flavoring, right? A, a compound gin. I mean, maybe you distilled it, but probably not. You probably just combined juniper flavorings, some other flavorings, um, any kind of ethanol beverage alcohol. It should have a predominant juniper taste, but that regulation has never been tested in court. If it says distilled gin on the label, some distilling has happened, right? The ethyl alcohol has been redistilled with juniper or it's been redistilled with other flavorings and you add a juniper flavoring or something. Some distilling has gone on. And if the label says London gin, note, not London dry gin, but London gin, then the ethyl alcohol has been redistilled with all the botanicals present. Right, that means all the botanicals go in the still, either directly in the liquid or they hang in a little bag or they sit in a little tray above the pot still. But London gin means the alcohol has been redistilled with all the botanicals present. Now, gin can be compound gin, but between distilled gin and London gin, it's not like one is better than the other. Absolutely not. If you think about it, London gin means you can only use extremely tough botanicals, things like indeed juniper and cardamom and cassia that can survive distillation because distillation is very destructive. If, for instance, you wanted to distill rose petals or cucumbers or sakura blossoms or something like that, you would have to use a delicate process. Maybe you'd use a rotary evaporation still, a vacuum still, and then it would have to be classed as distilled gin. It's not lesser at all. It's not like London gin is the best. Not at all. It's just different techniques. But that kind of brings us to the end of this. Now, obviously, we can go deeper on Geneva. We can go deeper on gin. Uh, all I'll say is send me your comments. I'll read all of them, uh, perhaps with a drink to hand. Like, subscribe, and follow The Philip Duff Show on Spotify and wherever you get your podcast. Follow me on Twitter, at Philip Duff, P-H-I-L-I-P-D-U-F-F. Uh, follow me on Instagram, at Philip S. Duff, P-H-I-L-I-P-D-U-F-F. I L I P 
S-D-U-F-F. Follow me on LinkedIn. Follow me on Facebook. Send me a message. Send money. Send gin. Send Geneva. But most of all, make sure you have a drink after this, eh?